0: This book is not just about the science and the technology of engineering, but it's also about the effects that these little pieces of engineering have had on people, the hidden stories of people that have created this engineering, and so on.
1: Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm Michael Kovnet and this is The Next Big Idea Daily. Today, I've got a question for you. How did the world get to be the way it is? there were major historical events, of course, and sweeping technical changes. But a lot of the factors that went into making the world we know were tiny, seemingly minor inventions and innovations that had major impacts. You can learn about some of these in the new book, Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way by Roma Agrawal. Roma is an award-winning structural engineer who's designed bridges, skyscrapers, and sculptures, and worked on the Shard in London, the tallest building in Western Europe. She's lectured widely and has presented TV and radio shows for the BBC and Discovery. Here she is to share some of her key insights.
0: Hi, my name is Roma Agrawal, and my latest book is called Nuts and Bolts. It's about seven small inventions that changed the world in a big way this book is not just about the science and the technology of engineering, but it's also about the effects that these little pieces of engineering have had on people, the hidden stories of people that have created this engineering, and so on. So my first little insight to share is a story about why Americans in 16th and 17th century US used to burn their houses down. Now, once upon a time when Britain had colonized the US, that was a time when iron and steel were expensive. They were hard to come by. And creating nails or forging nails required a very manual process. We didn't have the machines to create them, so they were expensive and precious. And so the British colonizers said, well, we're not going to send our precious nails to those Americans who we've subjugated, which meant that there was A shortage of nails in the US. And so of course a lot of homes in the US are built from wood which is a great natural resource available. But because the nails were so expensive if somebody was going to leave their house and relocate somewhere else and build a new home for themselves what they would do is they would burn their house down and then from the smouldering ashes would collect up all these precious nails and then carry them with them to their next location. And it got so bad that in the 1600s, the state of Virginia actually had to pass a law that banned people from burning their own houses down. I love that story. I think that's one of the favourite stories from my book. The second story that I wanted to share was the fact that my daughter wouldn't exist without the lens. So, the lens is one of the other inventions that I talk about. And lenses are curved pieces of glass or other transparent materials that allow you to bend light. And I discuss how lenses have given humans superpowers. So, for me, I wear glasses. And so, just being able to see on a daily basis is something I'm very grateful for. But lenses have allowed us to use microscopes to look at tiny things, discover the world of bacteria, of blood cells, and so on. And it's also allowed us to look at very massive, faraway things like our solar system, other planets, galaxies, and our wide universe. So the reason that my daughter wouldn't exist without this amazing invention is because she is an IVF baby. And what that required was for somebody to extract an egg from my body Extract sperm from my husband's body. And then, under a microscope, somebody injected a single sperm into my egg. And that turned into an embryo, which was then transplanted back into my womb and allowed to, you know, a chance to become a child. And so that's how I got pregnant. And I basically wouldn't be able to have biological children if it wasn't for this incredible invention, the lens. I also really love the story of the lens because photography is incredibly important. Photography didn't originally use lenses. We used to have pinhole cameras, but it meant that the images that we could capture were very, very limited in their scope. And the lens has allowed us to capture images that are small, that are far away, allowed us to to zoom in and look at features. And, And photography has had a huge impact on society. It's allowed us to understand and see cultures, animals, food from all around the world. It's even got political impact. So Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of his time. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. And he used that to humanise black people in the US during his abolitionist campaign. So there is a huge societal impact of the lens. The third one I wanted to talk about was the impact of hidden figures of incredible people from marginalized backgrounds or communities that haven't achieved the fame or the money or the recognition that they deserve for their work. So engineering has historically been a very male-dominated industry, and the patent system and so on have been very dominated by the West. And this means we've lost a lot of stories out there. And my book has some incredible stories One being of the woman Josephine Cochrane who invented the first automatic dishwasher and in fact she was able to obtain a patent even though there were so many barriers around her. There is Miriam Menken who was the woman that did a huge amount of research and all the experiments that allowed her men, the bosses who were men, to fertilize and create the process of embryo, but she was in fact the first person to fertilize an embryo outside the human body. I write about Mary Hopkinson, who was the lab technician that enabled, again, all the experimentation to happen, which allowed the invention of the heart-lung bypass machine, which revolutionized heart surgery. I talk about people from other parts of the world, outside the global north. I talk about Jagdish Chandra Bose, who was an Indian scientist and engineer who did incredible research into all sorts of topics, but in my case I've written about his work on transmitting radio waves, which are a type of electromagnetic wave. So they form an important part of my magnet chapter, and he invented a device called a coherer which was responsible for receiving and interpreting electromagnetic waves and so without him the radio wouldn't exist and he didn't believe in patenting his work. And I also talk about Kenjiro Takayanagi who was a Japanese engineer who invented the first all-electric television. Again he did not patent his work and records of his invention um, were destroyed during the Second World War. So I think it's really incredibly important that we broaden out our understanding of where engineering and science come from, who does all of this science and engineering, and try and find the stories of some of these incredible human beings that, like I said, just didn't get the recognition that they deserved. So my book is packed full of such amazing figures. My fourth insight is to share how colonialism and engineering are linked. So we've talked a little bit about colonialism and nails in the US, but I specifically wanted to talk about the use of the telegraph system in India. Now, the telegraph system has electromagnetism as the basis of engineering behind it. So by changing electrical currents, you can create signals which magnets are used to interpret. And this allowed the British in India to send messages over really, really long distances. So I talk about the fact that it was a Scottish doctor called William O'Shaughnessy, who set up the telegraph system in India across quite a vast swathe of the country, despite the geographical topographical challenges. But what's really interesting to me is that the system was set up for oppression. So of course, it wasn't set up to serve the Indian people. It was set up to serve the British rulers and the British troops. And so there are parts of India that don't have a telegraph system, or didn't at the time, because the British felt that those were not areas of high risk for rebellion and so on. And again, what's super interesting is that, in fact, my grandfather and my uncle and my parents used to use the telegram system, which was built by the British colonizers, After India gained independence from them. So there's a really interesting story there about engineering and colonialism. I also go on to chart the history of communication within my family. So going from the telegram to the telephone and the fact that telephones also have magnetism at their hearts i talk about the television which also has magnetism and of course the internet and all of our electronics and systems rely on electromagnetism the magic of electromagnetism to work so the fifth and final point i wanted to talk about was breast pumps now i am a woman i'm a mother and i gave birth to my daughter and i breastfed her and I found it an excruciating and awful experience. But a little piece of engineering called a breast pump actually really helped me because it meant that I could extract my child's next meal at a time that was convenient to me. So I wasn't continuously just tied down by her lack of schedule. And it meant that my husband could also pick up some of the feeds, especially during the night. Now, when I was researching the breast pump as part of my pump chapter, which is the seventh chapter in my book, I guess was surprised, but also I shouldn't be surprised that historically speaking, breast pumps have never been designed by women or by people that would use this technology. They were inspired by machines used to milk cows. So that was kind of unsurprising that I felt like a cow when I was attached to these machines that were pumping um, milk out at me. And then through the ages, various different contraptions were created, most of which had some kind of bulb that you attached to the breast and that you sucked on in order to get the milk out. But I really can't see that these were anything like efficient pieces of engineering to do the job that they were designed for. As time went on, coming into the 20th century, engineers did start to get a bit more involved in the design of these pumps. And... Unfortunately, the ones that were driven by electricity were really large and cumbersome, and so they could only be used by women in hospitals in kind of emergency sort of cases. The first electric breast pumps that could be used in the home were only really created in the 1990s, which isn't that long ago. I was a teenager in the 1990s, sort of. And the first sort of records I can find of women actually saying, Do you know what, I'm going to rip up... The rule book of how breast pumps should be designed and designed something from scratch was only in the last decade, not even in the last decade, like the last few years. And that's the first time somebody actually said, Well, what does a mother or a breastfeeding parent actually want from a breast pump? You know, we don't want to feel like a cow, we don't want to be hooked up to a wall, hiding in some back room in the office. We want the pump to be silent and not make the awful noise that most of the current ones make. We want it to be efficient. We want them to be discreet. And then the first pumps that actually fit inside your bra were created, which are silent. They use a special type of pump called a piezoelectric pump, which I've described in the book and explained how they work. And you can kind of go about your daily business while pumping for your child. So I think that that is a really cool story. And probably not many engineering books out there would contain a story about breast pumps.
1: Thank you, Roma. And thank you all for listening. Join me tomorrow when we'll be hearing from Ian Fritz, who wrote a book called What the Taliban Told Me. It's a fascinating account of his time working as something called an airborne cryptologic linguist in the U.S. Air Force. It sounds exotic, I know, but it turns out his experiences with language, culture, and conflict contain lessons you can apply to your own, maybe more mundane, challenges. If you're in the mood to hear that sooner, you can find Ian on our Next Big Idea app, available in your app store. I'm Michael Kavnet. See you tomorrow.